The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in April 2007. Welcome to a special edition of Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. I say special edition because it's a little bit different than our usual program. First of all, we have a Steinway piano. Secondly, we have two halves of two composing teams, both having worked on the same show, Mary Poppins, one originally back in the early 60s for the movie version of Mary Poppins, Richard M. Sherman and his brother Robert B. Sherman. Richard, welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. The other newer team on the scene are George Stiles and Anthony Drew, who have worked on the new uh, songs and new lyrics for the London and now the New York stage version version of Mary Poppins, and we welcome George Stiles. Hi, George. Hi, lovely to be here. Great to have both of you. Let me just run through a little bit of, uh, of, of credits. Richard, many, many songs over your many years in show business, including such top 40 hits as Tall Paul, a big hit for Annette, along with Pineapple Princess, which I remember well, and Let's Get Together. Also, You're 16, which was a number one song twice, once for Johnny That's Burnett right. in 1960, and then 14 years later for Ringo, Ringo Starr. And the song that keeps everybody awake at night trying to fall asleep, <laughs> It's a Small World, for the 1964 World's Fair here in New York, and now a mainstay of Disneyland, Disney World, and Disney theme parks all over the world. Along the way, you've written uh, scores for a lot of Disney movies, The Happiest Millionaire, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Charles Webb, just to name a few, and some Broadway shows over here, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Mary Poppins. So that's just a smattering of your credits. I'm tired just listening to that. <laughs> well, the show's over. <laughs> George, many credits for you, too. Um, you have written, along with uh, Anthony Drew, the um, musical Honk, which won London's Olivier Award for the Best New Musical in 2000, has since been seen in more than 2,000 productions worldwide. Other shows, among many, include Peter Pan, Tutankhamen, if I pronounce that correctly, I hope. Oh, immaculate. Did I get that okay? Okay. Just So, and uh, a new show coming up. The Three Musketeers. We'll get to that later. I'd like to start with you, Richard, and take things from the very beginning. Right. You and your brother, Robert. Your father, Al Sherman, was a songwriter, so you kind of grew up with songwriting in the blood. You wrote some top 40 hits. Then you met Walt Disney. How did that come about? Well, that all came about in a very lucky way. Uh, my brother Bob and I had written a little so song called Tall Paul. He's my all. And uh, we didn't know this at the time, but the Disney people were looking for a, a tune for a, a youngster named Annette Funicello. She was one of the stars of the Mouse, Mouseketeers show, and she had about six months to go on her contract, and she was very, very popular, the most popular of the Mouseketeers. And so they were looking for a song, and they sent a memo out to, for people to listen to, to, or to look for a, a tune for her. And this little song came along, and somebody heard it on the radio, a little record that we had made of it, and uh, they thought it was perfect, and Annette recorded it. And it became a smash hit. It was a huge hit for her. And the wonderful thing happened. The Disney record people said, if, can you write some more things for Annette? And we said, oh, you bet you we can, because we'd been hoping to get an opportunity to write for somebody. Usually nobody wanted to hear anything. They just said, oh, leave it and we'll tell you. But this time they said, can you write something for her? So we said, of course. And we wound up writing uh, an amazing 36 songs for Annette over a period of seven years, which is astounding. And uh, so some big hits came out of it. And one day, too, we didn't know this, but Walt Disney was very fond of Annette. She was a wonderful girl, and uh, he loved her very much. And, and he uh, was listening to everything that she recorded. And so one day he was going to put her in a film, and he said, who are those two young guys that are writing the cute songs for Annette? I'd like to meet them. Because he liked something in our writing, I guess. He liked what we were doing. 
And that's how we met the great man. And he gave us assignment after assignment. And we didn't realize it, but he was kind of like testing us to see what we could do. And he gave us all kinds of strange assignments, writing westerns and a little German song here. And whatever we we were given to do, we did it. And uh, one day, he gave us a book. He he took it out of his uh, bookshelf behind him, and he handed it to us. He says, you know what a nanny is? And I said, yeah, my, my brother and I looked at each other. Yeah, it's a nanny goat, right? He said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about an English nursemaid. He says, my daughter really loved this book very much, and uh, uh, tell me what you think of it. Tell me what you think. And he handed us the book called Pamela Travers, Stories of Mary Poppins. We read this book with rather amazed eyes because there was this wonderful, magical lady who did wonderful, magical things and took children on wonderful experiences. And when we were through reading the first book, we said there's only one problem. There was no story. There was a bunch of wonderful episodes without any curve, without anything happening, except for the fact that at the moment there was these wonderful tales. So Bob and I took it upon ourselves. He says, what do we think? And here's one of the great storytellers of all time asking us, what do we think? We think it's potentially great, but it isn't yet as a vehicle for a movie. So we dummied together a story, took about six of the chapters that we thought really worked. And we took those six chapters and wrote some songs for those ideas. One of our major concepts was it took place in 1934. The book was in 1934. And we said, actually, I think what we should do is uh, turn back the time. And when the world was unglued, like turn of the century, and we'll have that wonderful jaunty music hall style of England. And that gave it a personality. And then you could look at the costumes. They'd be different and everything. And we liked that. So we came in with this concept and a storyline, not terribly good, so I won't tell you about it, (laughs) but uh, we had four or five song ideas, not total songs, but segments, pieces, and uh, to set style, to set character, and uh, we asked uh, trepidantly for uh, 15 minutes or half an hour of, of Walt's very busy time, and we wound up for two hours talking with him, and he was as excited as a kid, just he was just marvelous. And at the end of this meeting, uh, one of the things he said was, uh, play that bird lady thing again. I played 16 bars of Feed the Birds, Tuppence a Bag. And he said, you know, that's what the story is about, right? We said, that's right. He read through what we were saying to what we were trying to say. And uh, he said, how would you like to work for me? And he put us under contract that day. At this point, you'd been writing pop songs, really, and as you say, doing songs to order for Disney. But now you were stepping into a bit of a different sphere because you were writing, as you talked about, character songs. You were talking about songs that would serve a narrative. Was that something that had been you and your brother's intent all along to move into that kind of field, or did this put you someplace you'd not thought about before? An excellent question because of the fact that from the time I was 17 years old, I wanted to write for the theater. I wanted to write story songs. I wanted to develop characters. I loved the writing of, of Cole Porter and Noel Coward and Rogers and Hart and the Gershwin brothers and all these incredible writers and Rogers and Hammerstein. All these people were my idols. At least to this day they are. And uh, yes, I wanted, to, I wanted to work in that field, but nobody was going to give me a job doing that sort of thing. And, and when we got out of college... Uh, my dad teamed us up. He, my brother was going to write the great American novel, and I was going to write the great American musical, and we were digging the great American hole in the ground. And so uh, he said, I bet you guys together couldn't pool your wits and, and write one little song that some kid would give up his lunch money for to buy a record of it. And that was the challenge. You know, the gauntlet was thrown. And uh, so we started writing pop tunes just to show dad we can write them. 
and uh, we had a little success, and it was okay, but we we didn't break the uh, any any records. But uh, I was went into the service. My brother had been in the army during World War II, and I went in at, about the Korean War time. And so when I finished saving the world for democracy, my brother was writing with somebody else. And uh, so I was writing on my own for a while. And then we got together. And within six months of the time we got together, we had written this little Tall Paul song. And our luck changed. In your time writing really exclusively for Disney, there was a period where you were writing all of their uh, movies, both animated and live action. That's right. Were you be were you still thinking about writing for the theater? Was the process the same writing those, or was it was it something different that Walt was looking for than if you were writing a conventional musical comedy? Because nowadays, of course, everybody talks about how the recent Disney films took the exact model of a Broadway show, Beauty and the Beast, and that gave rise gave rise to what we see on Broadway now. Was that the case then? Did was Walt saying look to the Broadway model, or did he have something else in mind? I don't believe Walt uh, ever thought that way. He thought, write what my story requires. Develop the characters that my stories uh, need. Uh, write the situation as it appears in the story. And basically, that's what uh, a Broadway show does. I, I feel if you listen to the score of Snow White or listen to the score of Pinocchio, you'll hear the same construction. It's development of character, development of personality, development of situation. And so Bob and I were actually just doing what our instinct told us. I truly wasn't thinking, when I was so thrilled to be working for Walt Disney, I never thought about, uh, I've got to write uh, for, for the live stage, everything. I, I said, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm writing these wonderful, challenging assignments. And it was wonderful to be a staff writer because you never knew what the next thing was, what they needed. We need a song for Chevalier to sing in a, sto in a story about the castaways. And we, we wrote that. And then uh, the next thing we, we needed, Burl Ives to sing a little folk song. And, so and it was marvelous because we were constantly doing different things. But always in the background was this back burner project called Mary Poppins. And we worked with a brilliant, brilliant artist writer named Don DeGrati. And Bob and I used to develop sequences with Don. And then we were developing what many of the songs are, what you hear today in the show. And uh, uh, it was always that kind of uh, slow development thing until Walt felt we had enough good material to bring in his top writer named Bill Walsh, who was a brilliant, brilliant writer and a co-producer with Walt on many projects. And so Bill Walsh and Don DeGrati, Bob and I and Walt, finalized the storyline. And then uh, we brought Mrs. Travers over to hear what we had. And that's how we started getting the ball rolling. Well, in the late 50s, you're writing top 40 hits. Then in the 60s, writing songs for Disney. Yes. In 1970, 71, you wrote a show uh, that was produced in Los Angeles called Victory Canteen, right. which then developed into a 1973 Broadway show called Over Here. Yes, that's right. It was a wonderful show, too, really. We brought the Andrews sisters back to, to big time, and uh, we had some wonderful talents. You know, John Travolta started in that show, and Annie Reinking, the brilliant choreographer-dancer, uh, and uh, so many wonderful Treat Williams, uh, marvelous, marvelous talents that were all uh, part of that show. And Janie Sell won a Tony that year for her wonderful role as Mitzi the Nazi. It was wonderful stuff. And I read somewhere that you and your brother were very pleased when you'd be standing in the lobby of the theater. You'd hear people saying, I remember that song because the songs you wrote were all original to the show, <laughs> yet they sounded like they were 1940s World War II vintage well, songs. A lot of it is to do, it's the fun of capturing a style. You sort of 
turn your brain into what that era was, what what it felt like, and and so you could write songs that that, that felt uh, in that uh, keeping with that. Uh, for example, uh, I'm trying to think of. Uh, let's see, we had. Uh, Dream drumming. I'm another crooper heading up a super band, and I'm the leader man. Say I'm dream drumming, dancing in the spotlight. Da 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 da. That song was sung by John Travolta in 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 the show, and it was so typical a, a jivey kind of a song. Uh, there were so many songs that I I haven't thought about them in so many years, but. That's that's what it was. It was capturing a period, capturing a style, and uh, writing ballads of that style and, and writing jive songs there. That obviously was the moment when you got to realize your original dream, even though you'd achieved enormous success of, of getting a show to Broadway. We should ask, because the listeners to this channel would, would kill us if we didn't, about the Busker Alley experience many years later, which is a show that many people have heard of and not many have had a chance to see. Busker Alley is, I think, uh, in my opinion, one of the best things Bob and I have ever done. We didn't have good luck with it. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't get off to the right start. Uh, we hope to bring it back again and, and have it seen correctly, and it's a big dream of ours to do that. But it's too soon to talk about how we intend to do it. But I will say this. It's it's a lovely play that wasn't really uh, seen the right way, and we were out on the on the road for seven months working on it. And then uh, Tommy Toon, who was actually our star at the time, broke his uh, toe and couldn't dance, and we couldn't open the show because he was his name is above the headline uh, above the title, and <laughs> it was just an impossibility. It broke a lot of people's hearts. I remember I g- it gave me a chance to write a song called "When You Broke Your Toe, You Broke My Heart." <laughs> but no, <laughs> but actually, uh, it, it's, it's going to happen one day. It's going to come back. And then Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh yeah, you, well you Chitty had Bang that, Bang, of course, as, as a motion picture. Then yes. it was made into a, a stage production in, in London. Yes, it was, a, and it's a, it's still running in in, uh, in England. It's it's touring England. It's going to go to Australia soon. Uh, it's uh, it ran for three years at the Palladium, packed them in every night for three years, and then it's, it didn't last that long in New York, uh, unfortunately. I don't know why. I loved it. It was a great show. We had a great cast, but uh, Chitty Bang Bang meant a lot to us. It was uh, produced by Cubby Broccoli as a film, and the Cubby Broccoli family, Dana Broccoli, the late Dana Broccoli, and her family uh, and other wonderful people produced it uh, on the stage. And it means a lot to me. It was a lovely, lovely show, and I, I truly uh, enjoyed working on that show. And you were given Walt Disney's permission to, to do that outside of your duties for him. That's the kind of a man he was. It was Cubby Broccoli who wanted to do a co-production with Walt, and Walt's plate was filled at the time. He said, I can't possibly think of doing a co-production, but I'll, I'll let the boys out of their contract for uh, several months. And they uh, gave us a chance to go to London and, and work on the show. And we had a great time, and we were with a lot of our good colleagues. Dick Van Dyke came over and worked with us, and our same choreographer was Mark Bro and Dee Dee Wood, who had done Mary Poppins originally. So it was great, and our genius musical director, Irwin Costell, was so it sounded like a Disney show, uh, but it was not. It was Cubby Broccoli's production. Well, as we talked about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang on stage, in many ways that production really wanted to recreate what the film felt like, and it was your songs were all there. But now let's bring George into the conversation because the process 
of putting Mary Poppins together was was somewhat different. You were you had uh, two producers who had to come together to make this show happen, and I'm speaking of Disney, led by Tom Schumacher and Cameron McIntosh. Obviously, Richard, you had this long relationship with Disney, and, and George, you had a long relationship with Cameron. So how did this arranged marriage between two creative teams begin to gel? Well, it's a fascinating story. We, like uh, Walt Disney, who tried for, I think, 18 years to acquire the rights to Pamela Travers' original book, um, Cameron tried for more or less all of his professional producing career, which is still very much going on, to acquire the rights to the stage musical. Um, And he'd always wanted to somehow find a way of fusing the books and the film together um and that journey got to a point whereby we um heard that there was something in the ether that there was a possibility that cameron had acquired these rights and that he wanted to use the best of the film and yet that there would be new musical material so we thought well we'll throw our hat into the ring even though we weren't asked uh we ran out and we watched the movie because we'd not quite seen that movie in its entirety when we were kids we kind of missed Mary Poppins we were a little bit tiny tiny bit too young when it first came out Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was the film that we first saw actually and and um when I was six years old that song Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was the first thing I ever picked out on the piano so it was kind of always going to be a marriage made in heaven because (laughs) the Sherman songs were part of our musical DNA and uh, we pitched a song, having watched the video, based on a, a simple moment in the film when she puts the tape measure up against the children and discovers that each of them has their flaws and then they ask her about her measurement and it says Mary Poppins practically perfect in every way. And we thought, well, how come the genius Sherman brothers missed this blatantly obvious opportunity for a song? It's alliterative, it's instantly memorable and it kind of begged to be a song. Well, we later found out that they hadn't missed that opportunity. But we uh, we set to and we wrote a song thinking, well, we'll make them wait for Spoonful of Sugar. We'll move that up. We were, had no idea what the story was going to be. We just thought, we'll do it. And we pitched a song to Cameron with a sounder like Julie Andrews, a wonderful Claire Moore, who was the original Ellen in Miss Saigon in London, doing her very best Julie Andrews. And the song landed on Cameron's desk. And pretty much from that day on, I think we, we proved that we, uh, we could do our little bit at being Sherman-esque, oh. as we put it. <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny thing about great minds think alike, because Bob and I, when we first read the books, one of the first things that hit us was this, uh, where Mary Poppins measures the children's personalities. And uh, she comes to hers, and she said, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. And we said, there, there's a song title. That's great. So we started a song called Practically Perfect in Every Way. And uh, basically, if I play a little piece of this song, and then George plays what they did. It's interesting because they're totally different one from the other. And yet we used our tune in Mary Poppins in a different way. And I can give you that too. But this is the tune that originally we did. We're clearly... So- oh, no, that's, that's, that's the song we, we, we made. Wait a second. It goes like this. <laughs> Practically perfect in every way. In everything I do, in everything I say. That's the tune. Now, if you've seen Mary Poppins in the film, you've heard Glynis John singing. We're clearly soldiers in petticoats. Don't list crusaders for women's votes. Our song, it became Sister Suffragette. Now, actually, Bob and I put that song aside for a very definite reason. We had written a ballad 
which we felt was very good for Mary Poppins. And when Julie Andrews heard the score, that's the one number that she didn't feel was quite right. She loved the score. She loved everything, but she didn't like this ballad. And we were crestfallen that she didn't like our magnum opus, our major contribution. And so we said, okay, we'll write her something else. And Walt said, do something in the, in the dressing room, in the uh, nursery. When we first meet her, her philosophy... And so, oh boy, now we should get some kind of a slogan. And so we dug around and dug around to get a slogan. And this is kind of legendary. We've told it so often, but I'll tell it fast. Uh, Bob's son came home from school one day, and Bob said, what did you do today? And he said, well, I, I had the salt vaccine. And Bob said, did it hurt? He says, no, no, no. We put it, they put it on a, on a cube of sugar, and I swallowed this cube of sugar. It was just like candy. It was, it was a polio. Uh, polio vaccine. vaccine. Polio vaccine, correct. And uh, wasn't that called the salt vaccine? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So Bob came in the next day with his glassy expression. He said, I've got a title. I said, what's the title? He says, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And I said, that's terrible. Why do you wait? No, that's wonderful. It just it took me a second because it was so fresh, so different, so startling. And I was thinking about it as I was a spoonful of sugar, sugar, and I felt that wonderful lift. Sugar helps the medicine go down. And I kept singing, medicine go down, medicine go down. Oh, that's nice. It's ordinary. It's awful. And then I thought about Mary Poppins, and Mary Poppins does things you don't expect. She slides up the banister. She sings, stay awake to put the children to sleep. Why not go? Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. And we went up with the tune every time down came, and we knew we had Mary Poppins. So we jumped up and down and said, that's it. Okay, but then George, <clears throat> you and Anthony were looking for the introductory number. How did you approach your Practically Perfect? Well, unbeknownst, because I didn't know for, for certain how Dick and Bob went about things, but it just turns out that when we took apart as many Sherman songs as we did, which wasn't difficult because we knew them all anyway, but when we started to look at them as craft and go, so what is it that makes a song Sherman-esque? It was a mixture of something very hooky, but also something very original in language. They always had a brilliant ability to find a new minted phrase or a, a, a sense of new language, gobbledygook, if you like, uh, particularly word. when it comes to <laughs> supercalifragilistic. Well, but, uh, um, and what we realized when we were setting Practically Perfect is we thought, well, Mary Poppins is a very precise woman. So maybe she doesn't say it like everyone else does and just say practically. She says practically perfect. So she makes it that full number of syllables. And so we ended up with a little tune that goes, and I'll never remember the lyrics, I'm practically perfect in every way Practically perfect, so people say Uncanny nannies are hard to find Unique yet meek, unspeakably kind I'm practically perfect, not slightly soiled Running like an engine that's just been freshly oiled. I'm so practically perfect in every way. And there was a little bit of that Julie Andrews sense of practically. A little, just very precise and very beautiful, but a little bit of a scoop thing going on. And we felt that was somehow had become all part of who the character is. And you did it beautifully. And when I first heard this song, it was the first song I heard that the boys had written uh, of the new material. And uh, my comment at the time, I was listening to it, I was thrilled because it was so right. It's, it felt ap right on with the character and everything. And I said, that's one of the best songs I ever wrote. <laughs> and, of course, uh, 
then they, they weren't afraid of me anymore. <laughs> but this begs the question. Mary Poppins is one of the great film musicals. And when the decision was made to bring it to the stage, Richard, you and your brother are told, well, we want to put it on stage, but it's not going to be exactly what it was. How did you respond to hearing that? And, and what was the process of, of you all agreeing to, to both hand over the reins and allow a practically perfect film musical to be made into a stage musical? Well, there's, there's a, there's a multi-vicissitudinous question. Let me just start with this. I was not happy to hear that I was not going to be doing the new material. That's the thing. But contractually, contractually, it was impossible. It was, there's a lot of reasons for that. We won't go into that. But I just say, I couldn't. And uh, my brother couldn't. So we said, oh, my God, well, our biggest worry was, well, the, who are the new people? Uh, well, they'll butcher our stuff. It'll sound, it'll sound so different. I mean, different writers will be – it won't marry. It won't m- weld together. And what are they going to do? And which songs are they going to do it to? And, and which songs are they going to leave? And which song- We didn't know. It was kind of scary. But Tom Schumacher, who was a very wonderful man and, and a brilliant producer, he said, don't worry. You're in very good hands. There's some very talented people that are working this. Julian Fellows is doing the book, and Styles and Jew are gifted writers, and they're going to be fine. So I, I was sort of soothed a little bit, but I was nervous as, as a jaybird. I mean, I really didn't know until they were kind enough to send me over to London to meet George and, and Anthony and, uh, and Julian. I, I met him too, and, and they sent me the script ahead of time. So I read it, and I knew that we were going in the right direction. The story felt good, really felt rich and full and opened up quite a bit, and certain things had to be lost and certain things were gained. And that's great because the best of the book and the best of the movie are all put together, I feel. And so uh, I felt pretty good, but I didn't know what the tunes were going to sound like because, you know, that's, that's the magic thing. And so when I first heard Practically Perfect, and then I heard Being Mrs. Banks, and then I heard all the other songs they'd written to add to the score – I was absolutely overjoyed. I said, my God, they did a great job. It's just wonderful. And every time somebody says, I, I heard uh, Practically Perfect, I say, thank you. So, George, how did, <laughs> how did you and Anthony then approach the various songs that you wrote? You certainly were familiar with the movie version. You were certainly familiar with the Sherman Brothers' work. Absolutely. What was going on in your minds trying to, in a sense, not imitate but be compatible with them? Well, no, that, that was the thing. I mean, we really did want to make sure that we were in the same sound world because we were aware, once we were adults, we were aware of the fact that what Dick and Bob had done was really immerse themselves in the British musical culture and those songs. And they had such a great affinity for it. And I think one of the reasons it, it might work is because Dick and Bob were looking at a period that wasn't their own and retelling it and reinventing it for a new generation. They were looking at material that most American audiences would have no familiarity with at all. They wouldn't know British patter songs. They wouldn't really be steeped in Gilbert and Sullivan. They were it was a foreign form. Whereas Anthony and I were generationally removed again from where Dick and Bob were, and yet we were looking back at our own culture and as well as having a huge appreciation of the American songbook, of course, how can you not? It's, it is the great popular songs of our entire time. And so... There was a marriage going on with us and our past and us and the American past as well as what Dick and Bob had been doing in their day. So in a way, we were all kind of looking at the same material through a glass darkly. Precisely. I think we, we both were mutually joined by the fact, um, the fact that there is a style that we were reaching for and working with in our own way. 
And that style was the British Music Hall style, that wonderful rumpty tump feel. Uh, and one of the first songs that when we first played our, uh, a few bars of songs that we were working on for Walt, we said, we want to get that wonderful Music Hall feel. And we played Jolly Holiday. That's the first song that we, we actually played for him to show the style. Because it was so totally different than anything that was on the American market. And we had this wonderful soft shoe kind of feel. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. When the day is gray and ordinary, Mary makes the sunshine bright. You do talk nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. We, we had that wonderful rumpty-tum feel. Now, when George and Ants were working on this thing, I was thrilled because they came up with a counter-melody that worked fit just like a glove into our song. And uh, why don't you do a bit of that counter-melody, and then we'll put it together. Well, the reason for doing it was, and, and that, was the, that was the thing, when we were asked to do the work on the show, no one could have been more respectful of the original material than Ante and I. We were the people who were always defending it rather than saying, oh, change it, get rid of it, because it was... When you, when you know as a songwriter how hard birth things are and when you realize how good this stuff was, we, we only ever went and cut into it uh, when there was a good reason. So, for example, in Jolly Holiday, the great animated sequence kind of begins with this, as you well remember from the movie. And this was something that was just a feast of, at the time. You know, no one had ever seen anything quite like this in movie terms. It was a celebration of everything that you could do technically at the time. So the song goes off on this fantastic flight of fancy, and we knew we had to do the stage version of that. We were trying to make the children nastier. We were trying to make them a little bit less welcoming of Mary Poppins earlier on in the story, so that over a two-act structure, two and a half hours in the theatre, there was a bit further for the kids to go. So we wanted them to be a bit bratty and not so easily won over by Mary Poppins. So as their lovely soft shoe rhythm comes to an end, the kids turn to each other and are much less convinced. They sing, boring, just like other nannies thinking parks are good for us. It's just statues, ducks and grannies. I don't understand all the fuss. Is she doing it to spite us? We could lose her for a lark. Perhaps it's all a plot. I'll tell you what, she seems so different. But I bet she's not. There is nothing to excite us in the park. And now we should do it as a counterpoint. Okay. You really think we can do this? I think we can manage it if you'll right. start us off. Okay, we'll do one, two, three. Oh, it's Let's a jolly go holiday with for Mary. For a jaunty saunter. Mary makes your heart so light. To make your mark. When the day is grey and ordinary, Mary makes the sunshine bright. In the oh, happiness is blooming You're all around. The chiseled features, the daffodils are shining. Look down from above when, when Mary holds your hand. You feel so grand. Your heart starts beating like a big brass band. Oh, it's a jolly it's holiday. No wonder that it's Mary. No wonder that it's Mary. No wonder that it's Mary that we love. What are we going to do then? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't quite
quite in line. That's great. I wish the radio audience could see the joy on your face as you're saying that. You're so immersed in the music. It's wonderful. Oh, you're Absolutely blowing wonderful. our cover. We hate each other. Can't you tell yet? <laughs> These guys did such a great job on the show. I'm so thrilled with the, the way it works. We have a dream cast. It's just a great cast. I'm very proud of everybody. George, you touched on something interesting. You were talking about the journey that the characters had to make, and you wanted to make the kids a little nastier. And there was a lot of ink and uh, airtime spilled over the issue of was this Mary Poppins a darker Mary you Poppins? Used the D word, and I then knew you were was going to. it lightened <laughs> up again? Can you talk about what was trying to be achieved as the show was transitioned? Because I think there are a lot of of opinions out there, but not necessarily the opinions of the people who put it together. You're so right. I mean, that's the thing. Nobody sat down and said in the creative process, how are we going to turn a saccharine film into something properly British and dark? (laughs) It was never the agenda. I mean, all we ever wanted to do was literally take the best bits of the books that weren't already in the film because a lot of the best bits, the six yes. chapters that you guys circled that turned out to be the same six chapters that yeah, Walt, Walt had circled right. when he gave exactly. you that, although he didn't show them that. They'd no. actually picked out the same bunch of material. We sat down and read all of the books because she wrote across 30-odd years. She wrote a whole bunch, five books and two sort of compendium books to go with them. And we just read through to see what else we could take that was potentially theatrical because they were looking for ideas that were visual that would make great movie material. And we were simply looking to expand the palette a little bit. And also we did feel that when you were dealing with a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour theatrical structure, when when you needed to build to an intermission and, and pick up again afterwards, that we did need to make some changes. Because to simply plonk it on stage as, oh, here's the movie as you remember it, oh, yeah, we put an interval in somewhere, it could have been anywhere, would have been a great shame because cause the, this material had the potential to be made into one of the great musical movies of all time. And so we thought, well, we owe it to that material and to Pamela Travis to try and make it the best possible version it could be on the stage. And when things are that loved, actually people people are really prepared for you to go further than you might immediately think they are. And so we wanted to juice up the children. We wanted to make them more the kind of kids that you might meet in 2004 when we first originally did the show or 2007, not so removed into a candy floss age when children were just seen and not heard. Children have always been brats. You know, they might, brats in their own way. And so oh, I just think sure. we needed to filter that through. They're not, they're not monsters. They're not about to, you know, you set de- the house on you fire. You developed them further. You've, we had a li- they were slightly bratty. They ran away from the nanny mm. and everything. But you... you went a little further so that you could have a, a curve so they could really be uh, a, a change. Exactly. So you uh, ended up with subtle things like from, you know, if you want this choice position, just ended up with a, instead of it being a very simple, lovely, almost lullabyish accompaniment, it became much spikier. We, yeah. we gave it offbeat rhythms. If you want this choice position, so the, the accompaniment is working against the children. And the song's sung probably in about half the time that it's sung in They're a little sassy. As well. They're so more they're just, sassy. They're yeah. more sort of uh, obtruse. Yeah, they are, aren't they? And, and the same thing occurred with the, with the parents particularly. Um, but, but you see, it was, all the seeds of it were there in the movie. The, 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 the journey that George Banks goes on, Julian Fellows said, the, the wonderful book writer who just won his Oscar for uh, Gosford Park when we started work on this project, Julian said, I always feel like the subtitle of this story is The Redemption of George Banks. 
And not only that, we, we very soon decided that we wanted to alter the way the mother worked because we knew that Pamela Travers had been particularly not a fan of the suffragette choice. Now, her books really don't feature the mother very much. She's a kind of non-character in the Mary Poppins novels. She's there but doesn't really have very much to do. Um, the focus is always on George. And we felt that it had to be about bringing a family back together. So we wanted to give the mum a, a real reason why her life wasn't working well. So she was... But, you know, we wanted to make her an actress who'd given up her, her job to marry George and to, she thought, run a home. And she's trying always to do what the best people do. Uh, that's the phrase that keeps coming up. And uh, George is always exhorting her to have tea parties and entertain and do all those things and not be a person, but just be Mrs. Banks. And that was when we finally made the breakthrough with the character and with the song after about four attempts is when... Anthony rang me up from, from France where he'd been staying with Cameron and he said, I think I finally might have something because the concept of who she is, she is somebody else's wife. So in the end we came up with this. Being Mrs Banks should be an easy role And yet it's one which I don't seem too good at On the whole, I have a comfy home I have a simple life I have a name which tells the world I'm someone else's wife There you go. And by, by doing this, we, we realized that we, we had something that would endear you to her because you, you see that she's really a good person trying to be a good mum, but she's not allowed to do what she knows she would actually be good at. And, of course, it takes Mary Poppins to show her that she just needs to be the person she wants to be. She's a lost lamb, and Mary Poppins sets her straight, puts her on the right path, and gives her the right advice. And that's what Mary Poppins does. And she did that with each, with each, with each character. They all learn something and get richer and warmer for it and more understanding of one another. I think that's the major lesson that Mary Poppins gives each one of the characters. And uh, then when she knows her job is complete, she flies out on the west wind. Well, George, earlier you used a word in passing that, Richard, you and your brother Bob had to know to prove at summer camp in the Adirondacks <laughs> that you were intellectuals. There was one word, uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism. That was the longest legitimate word in the, in the dictionary at the time. Yes. Then there was the other word, which is now in the dictionary officially. Yes, hooray. Well, actually, we wanted to write a word to give it to the children. We wanted Mary Poppins to, to give it to the children as a gift coming out of this magical place because they jump into a sidewalk drawing. And, uh, and then they have wonderful experiences. And so we thought, well... Why not give them one of those double talk words, those silly words that Bob and I, we used to make up and have these contests and cobble, flobble, slobble, lobbleless and things like ridiculous words. They just sound good and uh, they feel good and the adults don't know what you're saying so you sound really bright. And so we said, well then, well, let's, let's do one of those obnoxious words and obnoxious is an ugly word and we had, it should be super duper but super duper is corny but super is nice and then we said well obnoxious is obnoxious and I think how about it's British why don't we say atrocious that's a good British word so atrocious rhymes with uh, smart that's precocious atrocious precocious and docious why not that's good now we have that and then we started at the top of the thing and we had uh, super let's do just plain double talk just go califragilistic and then we just had it and we who uh, and I'm talking two weeks of slavery to come up with this thing and we finally came up with it and you want to know something George and Ants spelled it in the show and not only that they sign it 
Can you remember how they, they do it in the show? I think I can. Give it a shot. Give, give it, it a, a go. Shot. Give it a go. And I hope you're going to do a bit of more counterpoint. I'll, with I will. I will give it a shot. This was this was born out of an interesting situation because uh, we were doing an early playthrough of the show and we'd reached supercalifragilistic and. Cameron, uh, we, we put it in a different place in the story, as happened with a lot of things. And because of that, it meant that a lot of the previous stuff couldn't happen because Bert couldn't say when I was just a lad, my father gave me a nose this week and I used this word to get out of the situation because the word hadn't been invented. So we went back and we imagined if this word had been invented, how it might have saved the Roman Empire and how it might have been carved on a druidic monolith and so on. And by doing so, we got at least to have some more fun with the Oceuses. So, oh, yes, um, you sure did. We managed to, um, Mary can sing, um, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious If you say it softly, the effect can be hypnotious Bert chimes in, check your breath before you speak In case it's halitocious Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious <laughs> But we were doing this and it was fun And we were getting laughs with the lyrics And it was, it was good And Cameron just said, this has got to be one of the big production numbers If we're going to do this, we have to build it to a climax And then we have to pull it back And he pulled me out of the reading and he said, come up to the piano upstairs, dear. He said, do you think we could spell it? I said, Cameron, it's the longest word in the damn dictionary. How are we ever going to spell it? He said, we'll be here all night. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe if we broke it into syllables and um, tackled it that way. And when we did this, I played it to the choreographer, Stephen Meir. Stephen Meir's partner in life is profoundly deaf. And Stephen immediately, as I played this to him, went, Oh, my goodness, we could invent a kind of sign language for this moment. Not ordinary sign, but kind of with a nod towards it. And so a brilliantly wonderful bit of organic creativity came out of one daft idea. So here we were, stealing away from Doa Deer, going S-U-P-E-R-C-A-L-I-F. R-A-G-I-L-I-S-T-I-C-E-X-P-I-A-L-I-D-O-C-I-O-U-S How about counterpoint? Go on, S-U-P-E-R-C-A-L-I-F-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-R-A-G-I-
nothing is as it seems. Visions may be real, and the real things may be dreams. And that became the hypnotic song that Ka the snake sings in Jungle Book. Trust in me. Just in me. Remember that one? Trust, shut your eyes and trust in me. That was one, you know, that... Amazing. Now, George, is there something that you wrote for Mary Poppins that we may yet hear in a Styles and Drew show? I don't know whether you'll ever hear it, but I'll do this for Julian Fellows because... <laughs> One day I hope he might hear this particular interview. Julian has become a great friend of all of ours. He's oh, yes. the, the most enormous fun you, you can have with, I was going to say, with your clothes on, but I know what I mean. <laughs> He's, um, Julian is just a great guy, and, and we, um, we wrote a song for Mrs. Banks, one of the previous incumbents in this position. Um, it was called What I Could Do, and I can't remember a great deal of the lyric, but Julian was crazy about this song. We had this idea that Mrs. Banks would have this big gramophone collection, and she would sit around in her living room when nobody was listening, when Mr. Banks was at work and the children were out with Mary Poppins, and she would play this tune. We found about a tune called The Bunny Hug. I don't know why. I think it was a period-specific tune that was, yeah. that was popular in England in, in 1910. And um, we imagined what a bunny hug would sound like, and we imagined that this very repressed and quiet woman would have this skittish moment kind of a la Glynis Johns when she would dance around with pieces of furniture and sing this song. Now, whether I can remember a damn note of it, it was... It was... What I could be, what I could do if I only had the chance. And I can't remember a lot more, but it was this kind of mad little... Almost as if we were edging towards the 20s because I was hearing these little Charleston each splash symbols. So like it was it. wrong period and it was wrong character. You'll but... find the show one day and find that spot. I know you will. Well, I, if we I, write anything with Julian Fellows, I know it'll be in this. I, I must say that I, I, now that we're thinking about it, you, know, you put these things into your head and they say, I'm buzzing around. A couple of the things we rescued, you know, to use in other shows. And then one thing came out actually lock, stock and barrel just the way we wrote it. We had written it for that same sequence uh, for this compass sequence. There was a, a magical compass that Mary Poppins spins and they wind up in different places. And one place they wound up was at the bottom of the ocean. And we had written this song that went like this. And if you've seen Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, there's an entire sequence that was actually right out of Mary Poppins. How lovely bobbing along, bobbing along on the bottom of the beautiful briny sea. What a chance to get a better peep at the plants and creatures of the deep. That was the song that was actually lifted totally and put in. Fortunately, the writers of the book of Poppins were the writers of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And one day, Bill Walsh popped his head in, God bless him, and he, he looked and he said, I've got a spot for beautiful briny seas. He said, you do? Great. Wait. Well, you know, so I'm pulling it out of the file there. Oh, yes, here it is. Seven years later, you know, I'm pulling it out, putting it up. And it became a wonderful sequence in, in the bed knobs. Old songs never die. They just go in the trunk. They mm. go into the trunk, exactly. And you pull them out when you need them. As extraordinary as this is, we began the program talking a little bit about Richard's other work that, that led him to both the film of Mary Poppins and the stage version as well. George, you want to take a few minutes before we wrap up to, to know more about you and your work with, uh, with Anthony and your work on your own? Um, you guys met at university? We did, yeah. We were 
23, 22 years old. And as the story, as I understand it, um, we've, we've already spoken that Cameron McIntosh is someone who you've worked with a lot, but fairly early on, you connected not only to Cameron McIntosh, but to Steven Spielberg? We did, yeah. We were lucky enough to uh, run into some fairly extraordinary people early on in our lives. Stephen Sondheim, Cameron McIntosh, Tim Rice, um, and, and, uh, and Steven Spielberg. And that happened because of a show called Just So, which uh, you know about from the, your days at Goodspeed Opera House, which uh, was uh, when we did a production there in 1998. And um, Just So, the, the Rudyard Kipling stories, I don't know how well they are known over How here, the leopard but, got um, its spots. And yeah, how so the on. elephant got his trunk, exactly how the kangaroo got his big back legs. And um, we worked on those stories. Uh, it was the second thing we ever wrote after Tutankhamun, uh, the story about the discovery of the tomb in 1922. And when we started on Just So, again, I suppose in a way it was us looking back to our British roots. And, you know, the Jungle Book had been a great favorite. And, and we loved the kind of irreverence, which uh, the kind of jazz score that had been applied to Kipling. And I think without even thinking consciously about it, we wanted to riff on that idea. So we wrote a musical based on these episodic stories, just like you, all the problems of how you link together an episode, a, a picaresque kind of situation, and, and turn it into a narrative. And we did a production of it in London in uh, 1989, which uh, got attention um, basically all around the world, and, and Steven Spielberg uh, optioned it for feature animation. So we disappeared out to L.A. in 1992 and had an extraordinary two weeks working at uh, Amblimation, as it was then called, with Steven Spielberg and the writers at that time who'd been put onto the project and had our very first taste of Hollywood. So we got lucky very early. But... As I recall, you got taken up very early, and then the rights to Just So got somewhat tied up because of Spielberg? It really wasn't. It wasn't, to be honest, Howard, it wasn't really a rights situation. It was simply that we got very tied up in trying to write the mm-hmm. thing. It, 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 it was just a complicated thing to try and adapt these very disjointed stories. We finally done it in a version we're thrilled with the cast albums available you can hire it through mti and and we're very thrilled with the show but it it was the show that taught us how to write it was literally like our kind of project but we got to a point where we'd been working on it more or less unbroken for seven years and um a a lovely man called nick heitner who now runs the national theater in great britain came to see the show and he said boys for goodness sake, leave it alone and write something else. So we left it alone for a few years and wrote a show kind of as the answer to the problems of it. We wrote a show called Honk, which is taking one story and one story only, which is Hans Anderson's brilliant tale of the ugly duckling. And we updated it. We set it kind of now on a kind of soap opera pond, if you like, where all the characters are big, larger than life archetypes. And we told a simple story with a lot of fun and wit and humor and well, Frank Lesser told the story of the Ugly Duckling in three or four minutes in yeah, Hans Christian Andersen. T- tell us about how you expanded that to be a songwriter. No, you can always say something longer if you can. <laughs> Slow the tempo. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we 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 turned it into a, a, a two-hour show with with an interval break. Um, we did that because we we had a, a favorite theater where we began a lot of our work, which has actually been put on the map in a big way on Broadway recently, the Watermill Theater in England, which is where Sweeney Todd. Uh, and its wonderful reincarnation by John Doyle came from. Um, and we were, we've been working there since 1989. And uh, we thought, well, it's the perfect place to do this show in 1993. And I came back from a holiday in Australia, and Anthony said to me, he met me at the airport, and he said, um, I have our new show. 
I was slightly taken aback and I said, oh, really? He said, yep, I have a fully worked up six-page synopsis. Not only that, we have the theatre booked. It opens in six months' time, so you better get writing. <laughs> and it was great because everything we'd learnt staggering along over the previous six or seven years with Just So, we applied kind of overnight with, with Honk and we, and we wrote it incredibly quickly. Um, and although then it took a couple of years knocking around between the regions, eventually it came into London at the National Theatre in 1999. Trevor Nunn uh, allowed us to produce it there with Julian McKenzie directing, and um, it unbelievably won the Olivier Award in 2000, beating both Mamma Mia and, rather significantly, The Lion King, because <laughs> Disney clearly featured a blip on the radar, which was called Styles and Drew, and in a strange way kind of, I suppose, allowed us the opportunity to be considered to write Mary Poppins. That was kind of, I guess, in a way, kind of a career-defining moment when you win the prestigious award against such strong competition. You could say that. Yeah, we, yeah. we nearly didn't turn up to the ceremony. I was in really? Switzerland doing an, uh, another new musical, The Three Musketeers. Anthony um, uh, wasn't sure that he was going to even bother to get out of his armchair to come into the awards because we knew there wasn't a cat in hell's chance of us winning this award. Well, I, I think it's, it's called biting the lion that feeds you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were in the Lion King Theatre. The awards happened at the Lyceum Theatre in London. Oh, wow. The entire cast of that show was assembled. They were more or less cheering for the announcement before it was announced. And, you know, when our friend Maureen Lippman announced it, um, we just could not believe it. The, the video shows that I actually managed to get both my hands to my mouth. I was so horrified. <laughs> you also, a moment ago, said that you kind of went back to your, your British roots for some of the shows you did. How about Peter Pan? You kind of uh, reworked that old Barry classic. Yes, well, of course, the thing about that show is that in Britain we no, don't have quite the same love affair with the uh, the classic Julie Stein and uh, Moose Charlotte version that, that is so well known in this country, The Merit, what's referred to as the Mary Martin version. Or the Disney animated version. Or the, well, the Disney version is very well known, but I, mm -hmm. I guess... I guess it wasn't, again, it wasn't quite the hit that Jungle Book was. And I don't know, for whatever reason, it, they, those shows weren't, in, at least in mine and Anthony's psyche, in the same way as they are over here. So we approached it thinking it would be fun to have a crack at Peter Pan. So, And there were a couple of moments that, that really struck with us. We were particularly pleased when um, Anthony had a, a lyrical idea, which was quite fun. Um, Peter sings to the children, You must think of something wonderful, a sight a smell, a sound, a shake or two of fairy dust, and you'll be skyward bound. There is just one rule when flying, which is not too hard to understand. Whatever you do, never land. And that, the idea of thinking about the fact that Barry had meant never land was the secret about how you might fly was kind of a way and we thought oh, well if we can have a bunch of ideas which give us a bit of a new spin then it would be fun to undertake the story and also we thought it would be fun to have a, a slightly more contemporary score with a, with a sound that was a little bit more poppy so that in Neverland anything can happen there's a kind of rooting of what sounds a bit more true to the period again 19, turn of the century in Bloomsbury for the stuff that happens in the nursery at the beginning and the end but in Neverland we felt we could go to a place which sounds like anything you want it to sound Tell us a little bit about uh, Soho Cinders Well that's the new one and um, we finished the score for that about six months ago um, and we're just basically now we're through with all the excitement of Mary Poppins on Broadway which was just the complete dream come true for us 
being Brits on Broadway. Um, we've been working hard to get this uh, show produced, so we have a full score. I'm going back to London, actually, on the plane tomorrow morning to start recording uh, the songs and demoing them uh, in the new studio. But it, it's a twist on the Cinderella myth, the Cinderella. It's a, it's a fable. It's set in London right now. Um, and it's a big twist on the story. It's not the Cinderella story you know. The, uh, the, the main hero is, um, is a young guy who works in an internet cafe, and uh, he meets his prince online. And um, the prince is already affianced to his longtime companion, um, a girl called Marilyn Platt, who's a very successful PR consultant, um, and he's an ex-sports star who's running for mayor of London. So it's got a lot of contemporary subject matters that are covered about the politicians that we want, the kind of people that we want to elect, and yet how the course of true love can run smooth even if it starts off a bit bumpy. And it's, um, it's something we're very, very excited about. We've, we feel we've written a, a fun set of songs for it, and um, we're very excited about getting it onto the stage in this coming year. Can you give us an eight-bar preview of one of the songs? Well, we were, we were thrilled the other night to um, do a little cabaret at B.B. Uh, King's opposite um, the 42nd Street Theatre, the New Amsterdam, where Mary Poppins is currently playing. And we had the <laughs> nice completely place. wonderful gift of having not only Dick Sherman as our special guest, but the amazing Rebecca Luca and Ashley Brown, our two female stars from Mary Poppins, premiere uh, one of the songs which is called Let Him Go and I'll, I, I can sing you a, a, a single verse of that this is the, the two women who realise that they haven't necessarily picked the best men to want to fall in love with The only way to free yourself Let him go It doesn't mean you love him less let him go to hold on to a fantasy will hurt you in the end. Let him go, why settle for pretend? I don't say it's easy though, when you come to tell him so, how much you really love him. Let him. To hear more, you'll have to wait for the cast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dick. Beautiful. Well, an, an hour ago when we started the program, I said this was a special edition of the show, something we've never done, have two guys seated at the piano at the same time. And I'd like to try something very different, even a surprise on Howard. I just thought of this as you were singing this, George. We have gone through the whole hour without once mentioning, Dick, your Academy Award-winning song, Chim Chim Cheree. Oh, yeah. So I'd like to ask you just to play the melody of it as Howard and I wrap up the show. Kind of play us out on Chim Chim Cheree, and we'll do our, our close. Just, just, just play it. And I would like to thank you, Richard Sherman, Dick Sherman, and George Stiles for being with us today on Downstage Center. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you both, George Stiles and Richard M. Sherman. It's been a pleasure. And your joy.
The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.